in your life besides church. And you know the sermon never gets shorter, so let's get on to it. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we're very grateful for your mercies to us. We're grateful for the times we've had with our families and our friends that uh, each year we share at moments like this. We'd ask that you would help each of us turn all that we enjoy as thanksgiving to you and also uh, that we would grow in such a way that we could bring these things to other people as well. In your son's name, amen. Now you may have looked at the sermon notes beforehand and in that you may have noted that it is out of the book of Revelation and you said to yourself, oh, I am so glad I came to church. No, it's not an end times sermon. You know the book of Revelation isn't about the end times. But this is the early part of the book of Revelation. Um, it's so eschatological, that's study of things of the end. Eschatological subjects do not occupy all souls Christian. I was looking at my sermon note record keeping. When was the last time I was in this passage? 1999. Okay, so what's that? 16 years ago? Because you like to stay, you don't want to encourage the saints too much to get caught up in left behind movies or other ideas where they miss the point. But there is a point. There is a point to the book of Revelation. And interestingly enough, it's about having the right, apart from the vision, the part we're in this morning, it's about having the right kind of balance in your Christian apprehensions, that, you, that you're pulling the right things forward in your Christian life. Now, as you probably know, if you've read the book of Revelation at all, you know that the initial part has to do with John, the apostle, uh, writing to the uh, seven churches of Asia, which is in the second and third chapter of uh, the book of Revelation. He was told in chapter one, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and Smyrna and to Pergamum, to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Okay? That was the instruction that he provide this to those seven churches. And much like the letter to the Galatians, or the letter to the Corinthians, or the Philippians, or Colossians, these are short epistles, which you don't have all the information regarding, because you don't go to that church. If the church uh, addressed was to the All Souls Christian Church in Moscow, Idaho, circa 2015, you'd go, yeah, I understand all of the instructions here. I can spot it. Some of these things, you're just going to, we don't have the information. We weren't there. We don't know the people. But you can look over the shoulder of the people in these churches and look at the warnings that John has given them. And very, very simple. They're a paragraph long. On the left-hand side, 
Revelation 1:17, right at the end. John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand upon me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Now write what you see, what is, and what is to take place hereafter. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now that's the end of chapter 1. And immediately into chapter 2, he announces, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write. Now, we don't know whether or not the seven angels and the seven lampstands are the seven pastors, the messengers to the church, or are they... Is it something in your cosmology you might need to adjust that each church, whether it's a town's church or an individual church, does it have an angel? Like when Jesus says of children, their angels always behold the face of the Father. Um, Do churches have angels? And this is how this being expressed through the cosmological, um, you might say, bureaucracy. But the angel of the church in Ephesus is being addressed, and that's to whom this epistle is being written. The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear evil men, but have tested those who call themselves apostles, but are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. That sounds like a pretty decent church. You walk, move into Wook, Iowa, and you're looking for a church, and you find a church in which you could say, they do not bear evil men. They patiently endure. They don't put up with any false teachers. They know why they don't put up with them. They endure patiently without getting you know, worn out. There's a kind of a nobility, a stiffness and a nobility to them. And you say, these are the real Christians. Because we're, you know, post, well, all the time in Western culture, um, the argument for something is important to the West. This is not so true in the East, but in the West, the argument for something is important. Um, And that became even more so in the Reformation. And so Christians, many, you know, one Christian word that most Christians know is apologetic. They understand what the apology for the faith is. And we're always wondering about, what about the Jehovah's Witnesses? Or what about the Mormons? Or what about the Church of Christ? Or what about the... Whatever, you know, whatever, whatever the what about is. Because we are like this here. Now what I want you to think about, and, and as you look at these four, we're looking at four churches this morning. I don't know if I'll do the other three next week, I might. But these four churches, we're looking at them in terms of what's wrong with the church and what's wrong with you in the church. Or what's right with you in the church. But there are two levels of decision that each of us need to make. What is our corporate responsibility as a body? 
And what is our individual responsibility when the corporate responsibilities go into pieces? This looks, this looks good as a church. Ephesus looks good. Now you have to realize, Ephesus, this is, you know, maybe the late 60s, late 60s uh, AD, and uh, maybe less than 20 years before St. Paul was their primary teacher for three years in Ephesus. You could read the book of Ephesians. I have a quote from Ephesians here where Paul says, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Paul was teaching that to the Ephesians, writing the Ephesians after having taught them that personally for three years. And then John has to write to them in 20 years, says verse 4, but I have this against you that you've abandoned the love you had at first. You've abandoned the love you had at first. Now sometimes successes in church, well organized, this is not something we're guilty of, great organization, everything gets done, or the doctrine is pure. You look at the statement of faith and you go, wow, what a great statement of faith. Or the teaching is, you know, intellectually valuable. We sometimes think that in those choices, in those breadth of differences about churches, that the fact that one is distinct from another, it's always okay. But not to John, it isn't. He says, the fact that you're doing these things right. He says, I have this against you. Remember then from what you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. This is, this is a, a stalwart church where patiently enduring and holding the faith Faithfully, like you think, if only we can stand against those in the secular humanist world or in the other cultish world or the other religions, and we as Christians hold fast, what could be better? Well, being loving would be better. Because you can get there faithfully holding on to what is true and not putting up with any nonsense. And we don't realize how important love is to God in his church. And when Paul writes, walk in love to the Ephesians, John has to, less than 20 years later, have saying, you walked away from love. A few years earlier, maybe 10, 12 years earlier, Paul had gone through Ephesus, or close to Ephesus, and had called the Ephesian elders down to visit him. This is in Acts 20. I have the reference there for if you want to look it up. And he gives a speech to the Ephesian elders, the people to whom John is going to then say, hey, you got some things right, but... And Paul warns them about false teachers. 
in Acts 20. And that's exactly what John compliments them on. Hey, you don't put up with any false apostles. You're able to tell who's wrong here, who's right here. And it may be that sometimes when Christians get taught something, if your ear is ready for that special teaching, you overreact to it. It sounds like they devoted themselves to spotting the imposters. Because Paul had warned them in Acts 20 that out of their very midst would arise false teachers. Out of the midst of the elders in Ephesus. And because they concentrated on that successfully, it's not a failure, it's a complementary quality. But you can find in finding the truth, if you ever talk to my father about things, he will let you know that there's a wrong way of being right. If you are not successful in communicating the love you had at first, then you're also not communicating adequately or doing the works you had at first. Look at that in red in verse 5. Repent and do the works you did at first. They had been doing works, but without love, because remember love in the New Covenant? Love is how all the commandments of God are fulfilled. You do not wrong your neighbor when you love your neighbor. And we would much rather, in so many cases, have a rule that the church would give us how to treat our neighbor than fall back on the love we had at first. We'd much rather fall back on our doctrine or fall back on the rules or fall back on something because it is easy to leave love behind. And in leaving love behind, the kind of work you do is a different kind of work. You could be very busy with the church. You could be fighting off the infidels faithfully in the church. You can be protecting the church from falsity. And yet, God's looking at you and saying, you know, you need to repent. Because you're not just trying to win the day for our group. It's not the, the Muslims are out there gathering followers and we got to gather some more and we got to fight it out and win. This isn't football. This isn't politics. This is pleasing our God in Christ. And our God in Christ is pleased if you love. Remember, if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Look at that church for a moment and say, this is something we don't know what removing the lampstand means. But it seems to suggest, since he told you the lampstand was the church, that God would, you might say, revoke their license to be a church. And sometimes maybe you have seen churches like this that are all about how faithful they are to the truth of what it is that was entrusted to them. And because they never repented and never turned back to love, doing the same thing of holding fast to the truth. Don't listen to the... There are people out there who think that these two worlds are opposite. So if you're going to love, you have to agree with everybody. No, they're complimented for holding fast against the false teachers. It's the way you do it. 
It's who you are. It's whether you love. Do you recognize that sometimes the church, and this we have to be concerned about it, when you say, well, all souls, I mean, half the congregation this morning is from out of town. And it is is break, and there are people traveling, and but we're not a big church. Now, I don't think that's a measure of whether a church exists or not. But when God removes your lampstand because you failed to repent, your institution might keep going. And it won't always keep going into liberalism. It might keep going into solid, faithful, conservative endurance for the name of Jesus Christ. And God may have uprooted their lampstand because he wants us to love. You don't love, you don't repent into love. He doesn't like it. I will come and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Another good quality. They, they can stand firm against the false doctrine groups. We don't know who the Nicolaitans are. Um, there's a supposition, I mentioned twice in these church groups uh, here, in, but it, it, it suggested it's a, a bit of a licentious, um, possibly. We don't, just don't know. We don't really know. But that was a part of their faithfulness. They understand what is a position that is wrong, the works of the Nicolaitans, which God hated, they hated. But God has an expectation of you as well. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Now tragically, by the time you get down to John's period, late 60s AD, um, Paul had already been killed uh, a few couple years earlier. And Paul, at the end of his day, 2 Timothy, he bemoans the fact that all in Asia, which included these churches and his influence in them, they had deserted him. They had turned away from St. Paul. So not only did, had Paul encouraged them to love and understand that they had been warned about false teachers, they, they went off on a jag against false teaching. They were one of the churches that had a good statement of faith, held to it, dang it, and couldn't be nice to anybody, couldn't be kind, couldn't be patient. Because what is love? Love is patient and kind. In case people, oh, I don't know what love is. Patient and kind. And if your doctrine can't be patient and kind, you might have your lampstand removed as a church. To the angel of the church of Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich and the slander of those who say that they are Jews, but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful 
unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who conquers shall not be hurt by the second death. Now, he just complimented Ephesus for this ability to stand. Enduring patiently, not growing weary. He's encouraging Smyrna to do the same thing. And I presume, since there's nothing negative said about Smyrna, they were standing as a Christian should stand. But we're not talking about winning the way, and sometimes this is why we abandon love, because love doesn't win. Love gets you killed. Okay? Sometimes it'll win, sometimes it'll win the loss, but largely it's not as competitive, right? It's not as much uh, smash mouth as we might like to get as we compete between denominations or our religion against another religion. In this, their good enough standing is only because it had to be in love. They are not reprimanded for what Ephesus is reprimanded for. They are credited and asked to stand unto death. And if you die for this, you will be rewarded. We're not, our reward is not how well this ministry or that ministry or Christianity spreads in the earth. That's not your reward. That's not when we get to cheer, when we get to go to the Super Bowl, or whatever it is, or Christian things. It's the pleasure of our God. It's things like the crown of life. And I don't know what that is. But it sounds good, doesn't it? <laughs> sounds like it'd be something you'd want. It's a crown of life, not sure. But God is going to give it to you after you have died for the faith. You just have to remember that being faithful to Christianity is not good because it's not enough, okay? Being faithful to Christianity is not good because it's not enough. It's only good when it is, you know, when, when everything that is supposed to be there, the love that is supposed to be there. You are culpable, you're looking at Ephesians and Smyrna, Ephesus and Smyrna, you're looking at two groups they're having to stand against attack, and both are faithful in standing against attack, and one has to repent, and the other is just asked to die faithfully and be rewarded. It's enough when you do all that your Lord requires of you. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Don't ask. These are deep, hidden things. 
You hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. Once again, Christians are so often feeling that the identifiers of their life are their doctrines. And so they quickly jot those down into a statement, a confession, a creed, and then they will go to war. You hold fast my name. You did not deny. Antipas, whoever he was, we don't know who he was, died for it at Pergamum. But I have a few things against you. Verse 14. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam. Who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. That they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice immorality. So you also have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Once again we don't know who they were. But we know who Balaam was. And we know who Balak was. It's in Numbers. I have a reference for you somewhere. Numbers 31. It's not the prophecy of Balaam, nor the motivations of Balaam. Balaam was kind of motivated. Money. There's also the prophecies of Balaam, which are actually faithful. He's not a Jew. He's a prophet from Mesopotamia, and he's been called in as a hired gun by Balak to curse the Jews who are coming up through the land. And he gets up there and he keeps blessing the Jews. And Balak is a little annoyed, understandably. He paid good money for this. But Balaam tells him, I can prophesy nothing but what I am given. Well, he finally, after all said and done, and he keeps blessing the Jews against Balak's wishes. The story drops out, he drops out of the story somewhat, and you think, oh, hmm. But Balaam, probably in order to serve his client a little bit better, and Numbers 31 suggests to Balak that he send women into the camp of the saints and turn them to the worship of Baal Peor, which is one of the false gods, one of the, one of the Baals, and using sexuality as their leverage point or their worship. The false religions of the time, in many cases, had cult prostitution attached to it. That's what you did. That's what church was for you. You went and slept with either a prostitute of your heterosexual yearnings, or they would have male cult prostitutes as well, which were for your homosexual urges. You don't, we're, not, we're not quite aware when you visit the Parthenon and all these nice dusty old buildings, how charming it is reading Bullfinch's mythology. Tidy little stories of, you know, foolish Greek gods, but the worship of these gods in so many other places. I don't know if you read Herodotus about how every woman in Babylon had to go turn a trick at the 
temple? Every woman. I don't care if you're a queen. You've got to go down there, and until you get a customer who will pay you for sex, you can't go on with your life. That was the way things were. We're not talking about American sexuality here and idolatry on the side. We're talking about people who'd come out of perhaps paganism and the teaching of Balaam was it was okay these practices food sacrifice to idols which Paul says there's nothing wrong with food sacrifice to idols but there is a practice of sharing the table of demons if you go to the temple of the God and share in their feast And it seems that certain hurdles that you allow yourself to accept in the church, th- things that people do. Now what we see here, when Paul in a couple of different places, two of his letters says, covetousness, which is idolatry. Because frankly, that's what idolatry provided for. It's how you got what you wanted. You dealt with the gods, You had your baser lusts filled either in gluttony or in sexuality. You got what you wanted. That's what God's did for you. It's covetousness. It's your wanting. Now in evangelicalism today, and you might not follow this on the interwebs, but there's an awful lot of evangelical churches who are giving away basic Christian morality. They look the other way when their young people are sleeping around, just because you're almost, you almost breathe a sigh of relief because it's heterosexual. Oh, thank God. But there are also evangelical churches that are tolerating the transgender and the homosexual because we don't know that the teaching of Balaam which says turn a blind eye or allow in the church those who tolerate the teaching of Balaam a stumbling block put in our way they don't deny Jesus Christ they have the right doctrine of salvation they believe in the Trinity what else do you, what else do you want they have the rituals of the church. They have baptism and, and the Eucharist and whatever else you want to add in. They got all that. But they don't stand faithfully for righteousness. Now, this is where the error that can be made about you say, Ivan, I thought you wanted us to be loving. Loving is not agreeing. People tell you, if you love me, you won't disagree with me. We think that in our, our married relationships. How can you love me and disagree with me? Well, love is what I am offering you. Well, it's not what I'm not offering you checking out my brain and saying, yeah, two plus two equals five because I love you. We're asked to take a stand for the faith, the doctrines of the faith. That's complemented both in Smyrna and Ephesus. 
It's complemented in Pergamum. Holding the faith, what it declares about Jesus Christ. Love does not trump that. Love does not make that go away. Love is how that weapon is used. Same with love, that love produces righteousness. That's why the new covenant falls back on love to make you righteous. It is not for you to be, you know, all snug with sinners. You give yourself to sinners, you talk to sinners, you love sinners. But loving sinners does not incorporate sin. The teaching of Balaam has no place in the church. <laughs> Where other idols and immorality or the wants of people and the way they want it is uh, allowed. The presence of this in your church is a culpable presence. So he says, repent then. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with new names written on the stone which no one knows except him who receives it. There's a personal nature of this decision. Now, I said at the beginning, you've got to think about how your church deals with this and how you deal with this because you can still stand firm when your church doesn't. In some cases, it may require leaving. If you noticed at a certain point that well, yeah, well, the doctrine Nevin has is pretty, you know, he's standing firm. He's just not very nice. You've got to decide where you're going to be. Leaving is the right, probably the right thing to do, or, or asking to have me to coffee and telling me off. I don't want anyone coming up to me after church today and saying, want to do coffee? Because I will, I, that's just not funny. I don't think that's very loving. Which is important. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and beguiling my servants to practice immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. But look at what he describes. What he compliments Thyatirans for. They've got the love, the faith, the service, and the patience. And they're growing in that. In other words, they're getting better at this Christianity stuff. But they become a little soft-brained. Or don't, because sometimes, this is, a, this is an error in judgment, you've got to work this through yourself. You know how some parents don't think they should spank their kids unless they're angry enough? Well, that's not actually how it should be. It should be cold-blooded, and you ought to have a good time. The kids should not have a good time. We sometimes don't think we can stand firm 
when God has made us patient and kind, loving, faithful. But then you don't have Christianity defined correctly. The demand for repentance here is of the Jezebel woman. We kind of don't think that's actually her name. That's like, you know, what would you call a bad woman um, nowadays. Jezebel still works, I guess. But she's in a teaching role, a leadership role, a prophetess. The repentance that is called for is hers. I gave her, verse 21, time to repent. But she refuses to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her doings, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches shall know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you as your works deserve. We're looking at churches, these four churches, we're looking at ones that needed to stand more firmly in the kindness of God and more firmly for the righteousness of God that is produced by that kindness. They all seem to be somewhat doctrinally faithful. You get that sensation that they are. Different stresses, Smyrna, no repentance at all. Ephesus, repenting of the lack of love. Pergamum, repenting of the allowance that the church not look up. There's a lot of churches in the nation today that don't practice any kind of discipline for immorality. It just goes on. People trade wives. Here, this last one, John says he lists the things about them in the main that are really good that he was wanting in the Ephesians. And you sort of get the idea that they're in a better place, even though the woman is Jezebel's there. He says, but for the rest of you, verse 24, in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, okay, they are the ones who were loving, faithful servants with patient endurance, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. Now, I know some of you, back when the throne of Satan was mentioned, and where Satan is, and now the deep things of Satan, and you're being warned against them, and your little hand is pudgy going into the air going, I want to know, please tell me what the deep things of Satan are, because I know, I'd like to know before I refuse them. Because, boy, am I curious now. The deep things of Satan. Quit it. You're not supposed to learn those things. To you, I say, I do not lay upon you any other burden. A church that finds a body of believers in it that are loving, faithful, serving, and patient, and the works they do are increasing as those things are ministered. Yeah, they might be a little, you might say, clueless about what's going on in the church today, of how bad some of these false prophetesses are. Some of you may even believe that some of the worst 
are women of God. You know, some of you might. But Paul, John does not feel the need to tell someone who's loving, faithful, serving, and patient to do anything else. He wants that Jezebel to repent. But you're in a good place. Hold fast what you have until I come. You should change your opinion of Jezebel. You shouldn't, don't think that you're a bad person because you think a bad person is a bad person. I remember my father, I'll tell you this story very quickly. You say to yourself, look man, it's, I gotta get home, it's a game. This is a Jim Wilson story. I was there for this one. A couple old ladies came into the bookstore, this is the 70s, when it was over wear up. Guitar's friend used to be. And uh, they believed that they had a photograph of Jesus. They were from an old lady cult. I don't know what it was named. Some old lady cult, and they believed that they had a photo of Jesus standing out the window of a airliner, you know, in the clouds that their leader had taken this picture outside the window. It was very clearly, this is pre-Photoshop and you had to do everything rough and dirty and it was pretty rough and dirty as a photo. Well they went on and on about what they believed and what they were, and they were, my father listened to them, uh, and they were all trying to uh, engage him. Again, dear old ladies, white hair. They got finished and he says, ladies, you know what I think? I said, what? I think you're tools of Satan. Well, they stormed out. Never to return. Because just because you're loving to people doesn't mean you don't recognize tools of Satan when you see them. And they were. They were the things they were saying were, were unbelievable. This woman Jezebel causing adulteries and immoralities of the church and eating, you know, taking part in these idle feasts. Well, at least if you're one of the dear Christians, even if you're not ready for this, this is just an admonition. You're not told to repent. Hold fast to what you have. But look at, it is, at what it is to have. Love, faith, service, patience, growing in your works. That's the situation that is the balanced Christian life. Anybody can have a good statement of faith. And a lot of times the ones with the great statements of faith are the most difficult people because they don't know what it is to be kind. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're very grateful for your mercies to us. Remind us where we've succeeded, where we've grown, what we need. Lord, if we're big on our doctrines, make us love it. Lord, if we're loving, help us be wise and intolerant of wickedness. Help us understand how the love of your Son
touches us and what kind of people it will make us. In your son's name we pray. Amen.